Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, Oz Clark, OBE, the world's favourite wine raconteur. His story of wine explores the places and recalls the people who have shaped the wines we enjoy today. From Georgian innovation to the origins of glass, wartime plunder to the roots of English wine, and the future for the planet. Oz Clark, OBE trained as an actor, a skill he transferred to the world of wine communication from his legendary double act with Jilly Goulden on the BBC's 80s hit Food and Drink, if you're old enough to remember that, through to his work with The Three Wine Men. He's been a prolific author as well on his favourite subject and his latest work is Oz Clark's Story of Wine an exhilarating journey through the people and places that have inspired the wines we all enjoy today. And I'm glad to say he's here to tell us about it. Oz, welcome back to The Drinking Hour. Thank you very much, David. Lovely to, to, well, lovely to hear you. Oh, well, it's great to hear you as well. And I really uh, enjoyed uh, the book. Um, telling the story of wine is no small undertaking. Um, it's build on the back pages more than a hundred stories that link to a hundred more and it's anecdote led it's a beautiful book to dip in and out of but it's also a page turner I couldn't put it down and it's a bit like a night out with Oz was that the idea yes it absolutely is I, I think everybody who actually gets hold of it should make sure that they've already cracked open a bottle i'd have a glass to actually prepare yourself for your night out with me have another glass or two as you read it because because it, it's it's stories david i mean i call it it's not the story of wine um there's a a great book hugh johnson wrote what 30 40 years ago the story of wine which was a a superb piece of history. Um, this is different. This is sort of my stories. Um, 100, 105, 110, it all depends how you look at it. 100, let's say over 100 things that I find interesting, things that I find important, things that I find amusing, things that I find bizarre and exciting, and hopefully nothing that I find boring. Because some people said, oh, why didn't you talk about that? Oh, why didn't you talk about that? And I said, because it's boring. And, and But isn't it important? Not very. Wine's not about being boring. If, it, if, you want, if you want to read about boring stuff, well, there are serious books which will give you the boring details that people like you and me sometimes have to cope with. But this is 
a book to tell stories. This is a book to put a smile on your face. This is a book to say, God, I didn't know that. Or this is a book to say, how did they get away with that? Or this is a book to say, that's bloody brilliant. Or this is this is a book to say, I can't believe you're saying that. Those are the re- reactions I want. As, as exactly as you said, as if you and I had a, a bottle of wine down between us and we were not only going to finish that bottle of wine, we'd probably start another one. And we were just going to wrap on about anything that came into our mind from the very beginning of wine as far as we know it right through to what we don't know at all yet so so it goes into the future and it starts in the distant past well it does indeed start in the very distant past Uh, you choose very sensibly to start in georgia uh, a country that i had longed to go to for a long time and then went to twice uh, last year and i loved it and there's a bit of Persian Persian legend in there as well, a reference to Noah's Ark uh, near the beginning. But um, it's quite difficult to really pin down where wine started, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I, I said in the book, I said, look, I chose Georgia. I could have chosen Azerbaijan. I could have chosen Eastern Turkey. I could have, frankly, you could have chosen probably anywhere along the Silk Route going right across to China if you had enough uh, uh, enough evidence about it. Because goodness knows where humans really got started. But the reason I chose Georgia is because they're still doing it like the same the same way as they used to. And so it seemed to me that that it would be it would be un, unjust and unkind and ungenerous to say actually I think I've discovered it started a little bit away further over into Azerbaijan or something, when you say, hang on, fellas, the Georgians are still doing it. Give it to the Georgians. So, I mean, I love talking about ancient Persia and Mesopotamia and, and all these things, and I, an old Jamshid and his his harem and and um, and the, the, the madman of the woods and Noah and goodness knows what. Because that, that, that's a classic point, David. They're all stories, and they're good. They're really nice stories. So you can write them. I mean, when I'm writing, I often, actually, I always when I'm writing, I talk to myself. I, I, I'm one of those writers who needs silence. Some people say, oh, I need lots of music or chat. I don't. I need silence because as I'm writing, and I write all this longhand, by the way. I mean, obviously, I can mm. use a computer and I write short stuff. I write little bits and paragraphs here straight onto the computer. But when I'm writing, I write in a very discursive way. I write in a very conversational way probably in a way that's really quite difficult to edit because when i'm when i'm writing books i often wander around for a day for two i might wander around for a week and and not be able to really get something quite sorted and then i finally sit down with a great sheet of of, of, of the great pad full of a4 and write ten thousand words in a day and a half and normally that's it it's i don't have to think i think i'll just do that again once I, I just because I'm talking to myself as I write all the time, chatting, chatting, my lips are going and I'm thinking halfway through a sentence. I'm not quite sure how that sentence is going to finish because I haven't finished that conversation with myself. So that in that in those kind of ways, things like jam sheet and and all these wonderful people. Well, they're, they're just the kind of thing I want to talk about. And that's the legend jam jam sheet and the Babylonian epic of Gilgamesh and Noah getting Noah getting half cut you know as I said blokes never change you know give them a you he's just survived a flood plants a vineyard makes wine gets hammered first time he does it falls over forgets to, to take his clothes off when he goes to bed that's Noah for you that's blokes for the next 5,000 years for you <laughs> but right the way through if I can find a story 
I tell the story. It's I want to tell stories. Um, um, there's loads of facts in there if you want them, but that that with with very few um, exceptions, there are once or twice when I think this is really important. I've got to note a few paragraphs of serious stuff, but pretty much always I try to make sure that the fact is coated with humour or, or coated with conversation, um, uh, co- coated with, with sort of tangential stuff just to make it more fun to read. Because as you said, you know, it's a, it's a book you can, you can, here's page 17, oh, that's about Greece. Here's page 97, oh, that's about hop. That's German stuff, isn't it? Oh, my goodness, here's page 151. That's about Nazi wine. Nazi wine, what's that doing in here? Well, there was Nazi wine. Hey, page 204, that's about Beaujolais Nouveau, page... 276 here what's that about the highest vineyard in the world i've just done you know i've just taken my the book and and flipped open four four pages so that sort of tells you the kind of stuff i write about yeah, highest vineyard in the world i you love know, what about the most northerly vineyard in the world what about the most extreme what about the most southerly they're all interesting and um, that's Nazi wine. Why is that there? Because it's really interesting that there was this great big Hitler had half a million bottles in his cellar and he wanted them to be the, the greatest wine cellar in the world. And it's entirely possible it was. So put it in and put in about it being liberated as well, and put in pictures of of, of soldiers all sitting on the top of the Alps there with bottles of Chateau Margot open and probably swinging them back straight from the bottle just after they'd liberated the thing in 1945. Shove it in. It's stories. And that was one of the things I picked up. I mean, you talk about the, the anecdotal nature of the book, but the, it's full of facts, actually. I learned a lot. I mean, there are things I just didn't know. And I knew that a lot of uh, French sellers were pillaged by German troops um, around the occupation of France. But I didn't know that um, these wines, some of the very best wines, ended up in Hitler's cellar. And I didn't know that um, uh, Field Marshal Goering was actually quite a connoisseur. I think, was it Goering and Goebbels was as well? Certainly two or three of them were were connoisseurs. Certainly, Hitler wasn't. Hitler had no interest in that. I mean, Hitler just, he he liked to, oh, Ribbentrop, of course. We forget about Ribbentrop because I think he faded away about 1939. Um, But but they basically... um, they, they love the flavour of wine. They love the good things of life. You can sell Goering just sort of bursting out of his waistcoat all the time. Hey, <laughs> bursting out of his waistcoat. He was bursting out of his greatcoat, let alone his waistcoat. Um, but uh, Hitler liked the taste of power. Hitler loved the taste of conquest. He loved the taste of submission. But um, that was what, that was what it meant to him. But people like Goering and Goebbels were different. They they really, really appreciated the good things in life. The, the, the trouble is that they thought that, as, as I think Goering said, I will plunder and I will plunder copiously. He, he said something like that because um, when they were talking, Hitler's quoted again as saying, we will give nothing back and we will take everything. And when some people said, shouldn't you be a bit be careful about really pillaging France. You're going to have to live with the French for, for God knows how long. And, and Goering and Hitler said, no, we're just going to take the lot. But Goering did it because he really wanted all these great things, these great 
wines, paintings, all these other things that they took. Hitler just took it because he knew that they were that they were the symbols of of what was best in the world, um, and he wanted them to be in his hands, not in the hands of any other country. It's all this Third Reich, this thousand year Reich thing. It's a rollicking read, the book, but we've talked about um, the Second World War there, and you have these moments of of pathos. Another one is the First World War, and less is known, I think, about the blood vintages in Champagne. Blood vintages are, are absolutely fair. That's particularly 1914 and 1915, but it's it's also um, anything else during that period. And very occasionally, there are bottles of 1914, 1915 um, wines that are, that are opened. Uh, and I think they are... I've, I've never had one, but uh, I think they are still drunk over 100 years on with a certain sense of, of reverence and a certain sense of quiet thoughtfulness uh, it in a way it's a bit it's a bit like in in our country uh remembrance day comes up every november and there's no one alive uh, uh who was who was uh, there but remembrance day even for much much younger people still seems to be more about the first world war than about the second world war there's something about the 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 humanness of of the battles, the humanness of the destruction, the 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 terrible personal stories that we seem to have managed to get so many of um, of, of the First World War, which still hits us. And the First World War, gosh, the the very f- first uh, Battle of the Marne took place at Reims, Reims. Um, and and they, they, it was in 1914. It was September. They were, you know, they were just about getting ready for the harvest, and it was going to be a really good harvest, the 1914 harvest. And everyone was saying, "Oh, lovely, lovely." And was, a few people said, "Excuse me, the Germans are behaving pretty badly just just north of us. It's not very far. It's good old tank country. They'll be through in a minute." And they said, "No, no, no, no. Let's get let's get vintage sorted." But of course, the Germans came, uh, and they just ripped through. Reims. And then they headed further south to Epinay. So to do that, you go through all those great vineyards of the Montagne de Reims and you go round the Montagne de Reims onto the, onto the River Marne and you get to the River Marne at Epinay. Again, you've got all these wonderful vineyards there. And Paris is only a few days away. And there was an amazing, I think it was called the Taxis of the Marne. Um, which they all got all the taxis in in Paris, just filled them full of people and sent them down to Epinay um, to try and hold back the 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 Germans from from reaching Paris. Otherwise, if it wasn't for that, they'd have they'd have the Germans would have reached Paris by the by the second week of September in 1914. And goodness knows how different the war might might have been. They were pushed back, and that meant that there was another massive battle of 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 the Marne, which basically um, liberated Reims. Uh, I, I feel like calling it Reims because whenever any any sort of um, military people are talking about, it, they always call it Reims. Anyway, Reims, Reims, um, and and it meant that the front line between Germany and and France for the next three or four years was going to be the city of Reims, and the city of Reims was what. 200, uh, 150, 120,000 people. By the end of it, there were only a few hundred civilians left in there because it'd been four years of 
bombardment. The, the the front line went through the Grand Cru vineyards of uh, around the Montagne de Reims. The 1914 vintage therefore was was brought in under continual shelling. The 1915 vintage was brought in under continual shelling. That basically by that time, of course, it was women and children and old old guys doing it because everyone else had, was was been recruited into the army. So. Quite a few people died. We don't know how many people died, but certainly there are there are stories of um, young children dying, picking the grapes, women dying, picking the grapes. Probably far more died than 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 that. But the whole of Reims then, because it was absolutely riddled with ancient cellars, which were started by the Romans, where all the champagne houses now store and did store all their millions and millions of bottles of champagne. They were all taken over by the government, uh, by the army, and also by the people who were left in Reims. Because Reims was bombarded. They started bombarding Reims in in uh, September 1914. And I th- I don't, I'm not sure how many days they went on bombarding them for, but basically I think it, I think they were shelling Reims for, for 1,050 days, every single day. Overcame the shells, overcame the shells. And in that time, they went on making wine. And the 1914 and the 1915 vintages, therefore, were brought in and vinified and aged in a time of intense military um, activity and in enormous civilian distress. This great city of Reims just completely destroyed. I believe there wasn't a, a house in Reims left, a, a building in Reims left that hadn't been hit by a shell of some sort. And those are the blood vintages. And it's a wonderful story. And it's, it chills you, even to this day, just thinking. Uh, as for me, every November when Armistice Day comes along and when Remembrance Sunday comes along, I, I get out there. And I am, to this day, chilled by the memory of that, that terrible war over 100 years ago. Absolutely. And... Um, I was, we do get to have some extraordinary experiences in this world, and you've had uh, many more uh, than I have. But uh, one of mine uh, was tasting at Paul Roger uh, a bottle of the 1914 vintage. Uh, I tasted it uh, five years ago when uh, I, I visited, and it was the uh, Vin Surprise that is, uh, you know, as you will know, is, is opened, and we you see the menu, and and you see what you're going to be drinking with the menu, and then there's a Vin Surprise, and it was the 1914 Paul Roger, as you mentioned, um, harvested by women, children, pensioners, because uh, all the men were uh, were fighting, and it was. Um, quite it had the finest bead of of bubbles still but it was otherwise you know burgundian i suppose in in character but it was it was of course delicious but yes the uh, the reverence that we we held for it uh, and what it represented was um, was just extraordinary Qu- quite a, a, an amazing experience and you actually feature a bottle uh, an illustration a, a picture of a, a 1914 bottle of Paul Roger that went uh, under the hammer at auction for i think uh, five or six thousand pounds um you yeah. feature that uh, alongside that story in in the book yeah well i a i'm uh i'm delighted that that you had that uh bottle david because i think um it's it's not a bottle i've ever had and i probably never shall but i'm really pleased that one of my friends has had it um but i also think that it it's a rather extreme example 
of the way that the wine world, to get the best out of it, we don't or we shouldn't just talk about its flavours and we shouldn't just talk about whether it's Cabernet Sauvignon or Merlot or Syrah or God knows what. We should try and look behind the bottle, the flavour, the liquid, to see the people and the times and the place and the history. Because, again, when we're lucky to be, have those open bottle, old bottles open for us, and I, I'm a great... I'm a, I'm a, uh, um, uh, I, I ferret away all these bottles under the stairs. I, I, I can't resist aging bottles because a lot of those bottles that I've got, I've got these bottles 30, 40, 50 years old, maybe. Um, and I sort of, I know when I got them all. I, I, all of those, every single one of them, I go in there and there's a bottle from Greece and then there's a bottle from a, a 1980s vintage of Bordeaux and then there's a, 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 a bottle of Burgundy and oh, that, that's an old Barossa Valley from 1985 and, and there's something from um, the Ukraine in, 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 in 2009. Was, and every one of them to me, I, sort of, I, I know where I got it. I've got one of those quirky memories. I know where I got it. I sort of know what I was doing. And this it helps me to remember what I was doing, to remember my friends then, to remember what life was like. And and to be able to go back to something like 1914 uh, is, to my mind, it, it, it's a really precious thing that wine can do. And it's one of these things that wine has... Um, which is completely different to literature or, or painting or whatever. Wine, to me, a great wine, there are several phases in the pleasure. One of the pleasures is possession, to possess a bottle, to take it out, to look at it, to wonder about it, to put it back again, to think, mm, think about life, think about times, think about what will it be like, when will I have it? That's one pleasure, and it's a, it's a perfectly real pleasure. The second pleasure is that moment when you finally pull the cork, pour the wine, drink the liquid, and that's the most intense of the pleasures. But the third pleasure is the memory for the rest of your life of really special bottles. And then with its peak when you drank it, which is all about maybe its flavours, if they were good enough. Certainly who you were, who you were with, where you were, what was happening in the world. And then going right back to that first time you made a decision, I'm going to actually buy that bottle or find that bottle. So it's, it's wine at its best. Um, it's up to us to fill it with stories. And it doesn't have to be a £100 bottle of wine. I mean, I used to do that with things like Beaujolais Nouveau. Uh, I've got all kinds of strange bottles there, which you just... I've quite recently got out a bottle of Kangarouge. <laughs> it was Kangarouge 1978. And I just thought... I, I immediately knew where I'd got that. I'd got that from a wonderful woman called Hazel Murphy. Um, and, I'd, and I'd got it uh, literally on my first wine trip to Australia. In the 1980s, when I was an actor, I was a singer. I wasn't even a wine person at all. Somehow I'd always kept this bottle through all the times you move and all the places you lose stuff and people nick your wine and you still, they never nick the kangaroo. They nick all the good stuff. They'd leave me the kangaroo. But I've had enormous amount of pleasure from that single bottle of wine simply because it goes on reminding me about a, a time in my life. 
Yeah, I, you make a very good point about possession as well. Um, I have a, a cellar or a, a wine room um, that I've amassed over the years. And uh, back uh, you know, a month ago, um, I had COVID. I was feeling rough as hell. Um, we just lost our, our um, much-loved um, dog. And I was feeling really, you know, really bad, actually. And I just went into my wine room and I was had no intention of having a drink. It's the last thing I wanted, actually. I felt terrible. But I just spent about half an hour kind of pulling out bottles and looking at them and, and, and kind of coveting them. And it's amazing how much better I felt for doing that. It, it's it's a, true, isn't it? Yeah. Take those, those people who wonder why we squirrel this stuff away. Well... We, it's it's a very particular pleasure, and it and I do like it because you take and I, you need to take the bottle out and hold it and look at it, and I hold it up to the light in in my little cellar and and see what the colour's doing and all these and you then you you sort of just what's as though you sort of caress it slightly and stroke it and say you know one day one day we're getting there and you shove it back in and it does make you feel better. I do the same as you sometimes when I'm certainly working late at night. And you think, oh God, I've had enough, and you know, I'm writing, and you're beginning to think you're you're not writing as well as you should be, and but you've got a deadline, and oh God, and it's eleven o'clock midnight, oh, I go, oh, and you think, just go into your cellar, just go and sometimes I just I just stand there with my back against the bottles, just looking at, at the bottles, and then I'll move across and just take a few bottles out and look at them. And remember, remember where I got them. Remember, you know, the hopes that you've got because we get those bottles, we hope they're going to be wonderful. And then you shove them back in. And I'm the same as you. I feel better after that. It, uh, and I can go back to my desk and, 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 and keep working. The bottle gets a reasonable amount of attention in the book because, of course, for a very, very long time, uh, we didn't have glass and uh, we didn't have bottles. And then when we did, um, they... Uh, were rather different to the bottles uh, we know today. And, of course, in the future, maybe one day we won't have bottles. I mean, you even nod to that as well. I, in fact, I sort of doubled the the, the um, coverage of that when I'd, I'd written some stuff about um, just... Uh, I'd written a piece on the bag-in-box. Because bag-in-box is... Oh, God knows, when when was, was bag-in-box? Bag-in-box was, I don't know, in the... 1970s or or something like that 1960s you know, it was ages ago um and the initial technology it was a, a swedish technology i think uh, of just having a a, a, a liter a rectangular liter of liquid uh, completely in, inertly sealed and it's really good it's a it was a it was a really good t- um technology then it's a it's a really good technology now um the only trouble is i always found with the things it, it was that trying to get the damn thing open without squirting wine all over your trousers was 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 hard work but the wine that came out of it was really good um but the bag in boxes that then became bottom end of the market stuff from places like bulgaria and southern france and things and they were they were never as good as bottles uh, there was always a problem with the, with the the little cork, the the little little um, tap, because the Australians had worked out how that you could, for just a penny or two more, um, you could get a really good seal on the tap. But all the Europeans and and I'm afraid all the English shippers of cheap wines weren't prepared to 
prepared to pay a few pence more per unit um, to make sure that the wine stayed fresh. Um, and so we got a lot of very ordinary stuff that never was was never as good uh, as the wine in the bottle. But that's completely changed now. Um, I, I think that the technology that we've got in a variety of forms now to make wine without glass, or if you're going to use glass, you can use far lighter glass than, than you could in the old days. And it really does my head in when I get these immensely heavy bottles of wine because you just sort of think, fellas, have you got a tin ear? Haven't you heard about global warming? Um, haven't you heard about climate change? Some of the people... Some of the Rioja houses still do it. Why? Rioja, for goodness sake. Rioja, you're, you know, people in Rioja know what's going on in the world. Why have you got, I've got, I've had a, a bottle of Rioja uh, in my um, tasting room quite recently. Um, and I had a full bottle of Chilean Sauvignon Blanc and an empty bottle of Spanish red Rioja. And the empty bottle was heavier than the full bottle of of Chilean Sauvignon Blanc. And it wasn't as though wow. the Chilean Sauvignon Blanc had, was going to die in, in a few weeks because the glass wasn't good enough. It was simply a marketing thing saying, this is an, ex this is an expensive bottle of wine. Our market demands a heavy bottle. And you, you get that in Argentina, you get that in Chile up to a point. The wines that are going to places like the Buenos Aires market, the Sao Paulo market, the, the Rio de Janeiro market. And in the old days, and I hope it's changing now, uh, the American market, because the American market, unfortunately, said a heavier bottle means a more expensive wine. A more expensive wine, heavier bottle is more impressive. Uh, China, again, China's, uh, again, got a problem with that. It It's done because of the markets. It's, it's done because uh, we haven't yet got the message about climate change through strongly enough to everyone who drinks wine. And this is, I've, I made my first speech about global warming um, in October 1993 in New York. And I said, we've got to think about climate change. It's happening around us. Burgundy will have to change. Bordeaux will have to change. Um, Tuscany will have to rethink what it's doing, blah, blah, blah. And everyone, it was in the wine experience in New York, everyone got up and walked out because they said it was absolutely disgraceful. How dare you say these things about Burgundy might have to consider putting Syrah and Roussan and Marsan and things in its vineyards. How dare you say that, that Merlot won't, won't be the, the great variety that, that Pomerol is growing in 30 years time. All these sorts of things I was saying. Four people stood up and walked to the front and sat down right in front of me in a hall which was rapidly emptying. And that was Miguel Torres, Piero Antonori, Angelo Gaia, and Christian Wex. And they all walked right down to the front and they sat down and said, we're listening, we're listening. And I have to say, I'm eternally grateful to those four people because it was my first ever time out to, to as a young wine guy saying... I think there's something we need to talk about. And nobody wanted to talk about it, but those four did. And, of course, we all know that Miguel Torres has been one of the great, great fighters um, for, for, to, for awareness of climate change. But the others, it was really important to have all, all those there. Um, but climate change, 
um, has also meant that that we have to rethink glass. It's one of the crucial um, bits bits of the wine world, which which adds endless emissions. The tin can is a fantastic way to store wine, and that's mm. only because the, the the craft brewing industry uh, realised that that this was a wonderful way to to promote the wild and weird and wacky kind of of drinks that they've been promoting in the last 10 years or so because it's a hundred and hundred percent marketing tool everything on a tin can is 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 whatever logo whatever message you want it to be now what was happening before was the in the internals weren't good enough and a lot of cheap beers for instance used to taste tinny um when they came out of a tin can that was simply a case of saying to the scientists, come on, you know, do better than this. And food scientists are fantastically um, innovative people. Um, and it wasn't very difficult for them to find a really good lining so that the tin cans now, you can put a wine in a tin can and it is absolutely as good as a wine in, in, in a bottle. You can put wine in paper bottles I'm not convinced about them yet, um, because after all, a paper bottle still needs a plastic lining. Um, And I have tasted quite a lot of paper bottles over the last three or four years. They're certainly better than they were, um, but they are still, to my mind, lacking in freshness. It's perfectly possible the reason they're lacking in freshness is because the wines are still not quite good enough when they actually go into the bottle. But paper bottles are are going to be something that, that we use. The bag in box now. Um, it, 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 one of the things that's happened, which is really led by people like the natural wine movement and those kind of guys, um, is you have keg wine that you can go into um, a place and in, in, instead of just having a cheap blended wine that comes out of a big bag in a box behind a, a bar in a pub, you get really nice wine now, as fresh as can be, just squirted out of a tap. Um, and again, that is that is being kept in a, by a, a mixture of the use of gas and the use of really good, completely um, um, neutral liners. All, there are all of these ways. The, the pouches are, pouches now can 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 keep wine really really fresh. We're going to have to think about these things. Um, glasses, the bottle has been of a such importance it completely transformed wine before one thinks oh the bottle's been around for a thousand years it hasn't jugs and things were around glass has been around for a couple of thousand years there are signs that there were there were some actual bottles made by the romans but um an awful lot of the roman stuff was lost during the dark ages and that looks as though uh, with some of them because there are one or two german bottles in in there's a german a german museum which has got one or two uh, bottles which seem to be of of roman um uh, of roman provenance with corks and that was the cork was lost the bottle was lost these things were all lost in the dark ages and um everyone had to start again uh, because the cork without the cork the bottle was no good because you couldn't stop it those uh, you, you look at someone like dom perignon that's you know end of the 17th century they were still using um in places like champagne for goodness sake uh, a wooden um a, a wooden sort of um stub uh, wrapped in in 
oil-soaked rag to shove in the top of the bottle to try and to try and keep it fresh and to try and keep a few of the bubbles in. Um, cork was uh, was a was a, a again something which was basically lost for two thousand years. Luckily, England has had um, a relationship with Portugal forever. Um, the Treaty of Windsor is, I think, the oldest um, treaty of friendship. Uh, which exists and it still exists it's something like 1286 or something i can't remember exactly when it is but and it's still it's never it's never been broken so that people like mrs thatcher uh, during the falklands war when they she said i need to send bombers down to to the falklands and the and the the navy chief said well we can't get them there mrs thatcher invoked the treaty of windsor and of course the portuguese with their islands out in the in the atlantic said, okay, um, Treaty of Windsor, fair enough. You can use our Portuguese islands to refuel your planes on the way to the Falkland. It's nearly 800 years old, 700 years old. But um, this this packaging is, that was one of the challenges of the book, actually, to try and make cork interesting, to try and make the history of glass interesting, because it's such an important part of what we do. Wine went from just being stuff that, that would go turn to vinegar within a few weeks. You just drank it as hard as you could and then hoped desperately you could keep some through the winter, which wasn't hadn't gone off too much. And then in that early period of the, of the, of the summer, you just thought, oh, this is really terrible, but we have to keep drinking it. Um, glass made that much easier. The cork just transformed that, which meant you could actually keep a wine. You could keep air out of a wine because, because air is, is, I mean, oxygen air is wine's greatest friend and greatest enemy. Without air, none of the wonderful flavours that, that develop these, what we call tertiary, secondary, tertiary flavours that develop in wine. They can't develop without oxygen and air. But, of course, there's a time when the oxygen, there's, there's too much of it, and then the oxygen destroys the wine. But yes. So being able to control it over a number of years through a cork and a nice bottle with a tight, with a tight neck it was a wonderful, wonderful achievement. But now, with climate change, it's time to move on. With that in mind, uh, you touch on the origins of the decanter, and um, it's a much more uh, recent um, addition to our sort of uh, array of wine kind of uh, machinery than I had realised. When do you tend to choose to decant? Because it's a bit of a faff, but then it can make an enormous difference, can't it? Yeah, because uh, that's just only it's 18th century. Uh, we think, oh, decanters must be going on forever, but they hadn't. Wine jugs had, but the idea of a decanter as something special and then as a piece of art was really only the 18th century. And I've got a few decanters, and it's interesting, until about, actually, until about September, October last year, I didn't think, I don't think I'd used one of my decanters for about 10 years. I thought, I thought, oh, well, you know, I'd begun to realise that actually a bit of air really does help, or blah, blah, blah. You know how it is, David. We, some of our, 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 our wine life sometimes is, is too much involved with trying to find out what's new, trying to, trying to, to work out what, whether a vintage is good, trying to taste through 50 or 60 or 70 wines and not really giving ourselves the time to, to just wallow in them, to, to understand what they're really all about. And often not sitting back and saying, okay, now I just want to enjoy some wine rather than work at it. Well, I was realizing that, that, that my older wines sometimes 
um, I was disappointed in them. And, and I do, I do um, some bicycle rides for, uh, for Alzheimer's with raising money to put music into Alzheimer's homes. And we, we, there's a little bunch of us. We sing in Alzheimer's homes all, all along a 250-mile route. Um, and then we go to the pub, obviously, and, because singing in Alzheimer's homes is, is, very, is very harrowing stuff because you realise what a, a level so many uh, people who live with Alzheimer's, the, the low level that they're, they're, the pleasure in their life has descended to. But you also realise the absolute thrill that you can bring back memory through live music. So it's, it's all very exciting, but very exhausting. And one of the times, um, I remember I... I put three magnums um, of of 1982 and 1983 um, Bordeaux because I knew that we had one place we had a decent dinner sorted. So I sent on, I'd sent on a magnum of Gruyere Rose 1983, I'd sent on a magnum of Bechville 1982, and I'd sent on a magnum of uh, Grand Puy Lacoste 1982, and we got there. Uh, and it may have been that we'd all had a beer or two and blah, blah, blah. And we opened all these magnums and sang a few songs and poured the magnums. And I I was disappointed by all three of them. And it made me wonder, because just towards the end of each magnum, the wine started getting better. And, of course, we've all been here when the last glass is better than the first but it just made me think, I've got these decanters. And I've got a beautiful Berry Brothers and Rudd Magnum jug, which is just the most lovely sort of sort of um, fulsome-bellied um, wine jug. And I started um, deciding if I've got mates around and we're going to have a Magnum, I was going to decant the Magnum. Every single Magnum I've done that to got immensely better over about half an hour to an hour, and often after two hours. And this is mostly 82s, 83s, and 85s, so quite old stuff. I haven't particularly done it with, with younger stuff, but I do know that um, when you've got screw-cap wines, particularly red wines, because the red wine in a screw-cap is often desperate for some oxygen, hasn't had enough. Um, but even in a Sauvignon Blanc, the second glass is better than the first. Why? Because it's suddenly got some oxygen. And the wine has woken up and said, oh, thank God for this, at last, a breath of fresh air. And immediately all the molecules go go bonkers and, and start reacting and creating these wonderful flavours that we like. So, And and, and another thing that is, is forgotten is how good white wine looks in a decanter. It looks mm. fabulous. Yeah. It looks wonderful and golden and green. It accentuates all the flavours that a glass can't do. So... I know it's a bit of a faff, but if you if you call it if you call it a pleasure, an indulgence, not a faff, then suddenly you look forward to it. And nowadays, if I've got uh, any any kind of magnum, um, there I am with my with my jug, and and really enjoying the moment of decanting, looking forward to it, and thinking, there am I holding this thing up with the with the with the jug there, getting fun out of it, not not thinking it's a faff at all, and. I would say I I was a guy who rather forgot about it, who thought it didn't matter, thought oh it's a bit old school, um, and I've now begun to realise that it's it's a brilliant thing to do. And if you want to do it with a I don't know a two thousand and twenty Gimlet Gravels Syrah from New Zealand, it'll be a damn sight better um, after an hour in a decanter than it was when you just opened it. Yeah, talking of fun, by the way, and, and making that ritual 
part of the fun. Uh, the book is great fun. And there are some moments that are, uh, well, you know, you, to use the old expression, you couldn't make it up. Uh, and that uh, makes me think of the origins of, uh, of sweet wines, which obviously go back to the Romans, as you uh, reference in the book. But uh, in more recent times, um, of course, Germany was much, had much more stature uh, with uh, consumers um, than it, it came to, to have once sort of uh, Bordeaux and Burgundy and the likes got going. Um, and um, Schloss Johannesburg is a, a pretty um, epic name, but um, we have them to thank for Spettlaser. Um, but it basically came about in the late 18th century from what can only be described as a bit of a cock-up. That's right. All, all, all the great sweet wines came about mostly the same cock-up, to be honest, um, because I, I'm sure that people had made sweet wines periodically for hundreds of years before that. But the times when you really, um, when you someone actually um, makes some notes, writes a diary and says, this is what happened, um, it's always cock-up. It's the same with Tokai uh, in, in Hungary, which might probably claim to be the first, first place to really make wine on purpose sweet. It's the same in Sauternes down in, down in Bordeaux. Um, and the reason is always the same. To make really great sweet wine, you've got to have this thing as, um, called botrytis, chinerea, um, noble rot. The French, the, the Germans call it edelfeuille, noble rot. And there's tons of rots in the world. Rot is one of the great enemies of, 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 a, of a, a, a wine grower, a grape grower. And there's grey rot and black rot and white rot and brown rot and... And, and sour rot and trench foot and God knows what, all these bloody things that destroy your vines. But one related rot is this thing called noble rot, which which just needs some very particular conditions um, of, of a mixture of mist in the mornings and sunshine during the day on your vineyards. But it looks disgusting. So uh, in the old days, you would find that the, the, these aristocratic vineyards um, you weren't allowed to pick the the grapes until the bishop or the archduke or or whoever had said, "Now you can pick my grapes." And the German Schloss Johannesburg thing is is exactly the same sort of kind of story as happens in Hungary and happens in Sotern and places that that the the, the the chap called the Bishop of Fulda um, owns uh, Schloss Johannesburg, um, and. <laughs> The chap went off to the the, the the vineyard manager, sent off a courier saying, uh, "Can you can you tell the, the bishop that we, that we want to pick our grapes, please? And we need his permission." And I don't know what happened to the guy. I think he must have met someone on the way. And I thought, "Oh, I'm just having too much fun," and got into his into his cups and forgotten about what he was doing. Anyway, it took him weeks to come back with the bishop of Fulda saying, "Yes, of course you can pick my grapes." By which time, these lovely bright sort of goldeny green grapes had been infected by rot and the and the, the manager just thought my my crop is ruined it's they're all horrible because they look disgusting and they're sludgy and filthy and they fall to bits in your hands it looks absolutely foul this noble rot stuff but what it's done is sort of concentrate 
all the sugar in, in, in the grape and all the water has evaporated out of the grapes. You just get intensely sweet grapes. So when the Bishop of Fulda's vineyards at Schloss Johannesburg got made into wine, I think it was in 1775, and they said it's going to be terrible. It, it's going to be awful. The next April or May, because what had happened, instead of getting a thin sour wine as a lot of wine would have been in those days and dry the, the the juice was so thick and so sweet it couldn't ferment out properly so half the sugar was left in the grapes and in 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 the wine so you've got this astonishing sweet flavor in the wine and we now regard sugar and sweetness as, as second nature sweetness is is in a way sweetness is a bit of a curse in our life um because everything has sugar sugar added to it to make us want more of it um but sweetness in those days a few hundred years ago was rare it was special that you, you didn't have great fields full of of, of of sugar beet and great fields full of sugar cane all the time pouring wine um sweetness over to us um sweetness was much rarer um and when you could get a wine which was naturally sweet. It was absolutely thrilling. So, um, but then you look, even you look back to Roman times or Greek times, it's the sweetness that they're after. Um, I don't know whether they ever had a noble rot in Roman times, probably something like it, but they did, they dried their grapes out on mats and things to concentrate that sweetness. They used to boil the, the, the grape the grape juice to make it sweeter and then add it to wine. So people have always been after sweetness, but the natural sweet wines, the great sweet wines of the world, the Sotans, the Berenhauslesers of, of, of Germany, the Tokais of Hungary, those sorts of wines, they all came about because of a mistake. Someone forgot to tell them how to, 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 to pick the grapes and they didn't dare pick them without being told. Because in the old days, if there was a... Germany is a good example of this. Um, if there was a lovely sunny uh, summer, uh, nowadays we would say, great, that's fantastic. Look how wonderful these grapes are ripening. Let's try and hold them on for another few weeks into the autumn and make something really spectacular. No, that didn't happen in the old days. In the old days, if you had a good summer... Everybody said, can't believe it. There's nothing rotten. All these grapes are still healthy. Let's pick them. And they would pick them, let's say, first week of September um, and pick them. And there'd be another month of sunshine. But for them, a good good vintage was always picked too early. The only vintages that were picked late were the bad vintages because you just thought, well, these are all rubbish, these grapes. We might as well just leave them out there and see whether we can ever get hold of anything. So So most wines were not most vineyards were not picked at their their ultimate um, quality anyway and this whole idea of of, of suddenly this the dirtiest muckiest filthiest looking grapes produced the wine that everybody wanted that it's 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 wines full of serendipitous you know life i mean my life is my wine life is full of serendipity i'm, I'm yours probably is is as well, David. Serendipity, discoveries in the, in the world of fermentation and wine, and places that are good, and styles that are good, and people who are who are talented. It's so much serendip. It is, and it's wonderful for that. Um, something wasn't serendipity. It was um, well and truly earned. Uh, you were made OBE in 2020, and that was for 
services to broadcasting and journalism, I, I think, but it could equally have been for services to the uh, English and Welsh wine industry, because uh, you have been there from the start, a champion of uh, the wines coming out of this country. Yeah, and still am. I'm tremendously proud of, of, of what we've achieved and what we can achieve. I'm a great supporter. Uh, I think the wines get significantly better year by year. Um, I w- worry almost that sometimes we're running before we can walk because the, because the progress has been so fast, literally in the last five to ten years. I've been supporting these some, sometimes pretty awful mouthfuls since, hey, since I was before a wine writer. Uh, when I was in the theatre, um, uh, I, I used to taste... Um, English wines and and once or twice when I was still acting on the West End stage I was asked to go and judge things like the English wine I don't know show or whatever it was in those days and the stuff was mostly pretty horrendous there were just one or two shining lights like people like Peter Hall at Breaky Bottom right from the start making fabulous wines but in those days of course he was making things like Muller Turgau as a still wine absolutely beautiful one just thought gosh um uh, something's happening down in the in the, the 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 lost folds of the south downs near lewis um stephen skelton um at spots farm which is now chapel down long before the other people around there were making decent wines he was uh, there were one or two sort of retired um majors or brigadiers a chap called Colin Gillespie over in, I think, Somerset or somewhere. Tiny little drops of good wine. Oh, a chap called Peter Hall. Another chap called Peter Hall. Uh, there must be dozens of them. Um, up in Norfolk at, at Pullum St. Mary. Um, he was making fabulous wine out of Mulaturga again. Uh, but most of the stuff was sour, unripe and, and dirty. Um, and even into the 21st century, when we already had had the astonishing... Um, night timber effect, which without which, and thank you very much, the Mosses were a couple of Chicagoans who came over here in the late 1980s and they wanted to make champagne and everyone said, you can't do that. And they said, uh, you know, you've got to plant apples. No one's ever, you can't ripen champagne grapes in, in Sussex. And they just said, we didn't come 4,000 miles to ripen apples. And he said, every time that they told us it was too difficult, we tried harder. Uh, and they made these night timber wines, which were so good it was it was as though they they took England, and I think they were right in saying, "Where's your confidence? Why why don't you try and excel? Why why are you just creeping along saying, well, you know, uh, we're, we're we're not very proud of this, but this is the best we can do.'" They said, "That's never going to get you anywhere." Good old Chicago. Uh, they said, "You someone has got to try and excel, and it'll be us." And the the nineteen ninety two and the nineteen ninety three night timber that they came up with, one of them won best immediately won best English wine. Not surprising. Next one uh, won the best sparkling wine in the world uh, award. The nineteen ninety three, and I remember tasting those wines, and it was it was um, one of those times when you just think, my world has changed. Mm. It doesn't happen very often in the world of wine. It happened to me, but maybe. Half a dozen times in my wine life, I tasted those Night Timbers wines. And I just thought the entire world of sparkling wine uh, is changing because at last I can see something here which is as good as champagne. And it was different from champagne. 
that was what was lovely about it. Um, the, the early night timbers were completely different from champagne. Then they changed tack a little bit. Now they're, they're you know, they've they've got back on an upward spiral again. Um, uh, but the and 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 it was so thrilling. Again, there are. I'm just looking back on one or two other wines now, which I can think of. The first time I tasted them, just remembering the sheer sheer excitement of thinking I'm. I'm in at the beginning of, of something great here because that that's what I've been really lucky about being throwing myself into this this torrent of wine at a time of enormous change. So I think I've been really lucky that I wasn't starting 20 years earlier and I wasn't starting 20 years later. I'd absolutely got just serendipitously again. I was, I was supposed to be a West End singer. I wasn't <laughs> supposed to be a wine person. Um, and I just managed to get astonishingly lucky. Um, and one of the ways I got lucky was taking an interest in, in English wine straight away and never losing it. So that when we started in years like 2014, saying, my God, we've made six and a half million bottles of something really nice here. And, 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 and people still say, oh, English, we don't make English wine, surely not. But then with climate change, in 2018, that was the year when climate change went off the back pages and onto the front pages. Now, 2003 had been very hot and, and everyone had suddenly said, oh, my God, heat waves. But it hadn't been followed up. 2018 came along and that was when editors on all the newspapers were saying, give me a front page paper, a front page story on what's happening about climate change. And so all around the world, and all around our country first, not the world, all around our country, Britain, people were aware that it was suddenly really existentially warmer than it used to be. Uh, and people began to say, instead of thinking, oh, you know, um, uh, that's English wine, we don't make English wine, surely not. In 18, 2018, they were saying, Oh, well, perhaps we can. I mean, it's really hot. 2019 came along, even hotter. They said, my goodness, yes. And, and people start saying, well, would you like to try my 2018 wine? And even five and a half years ago, they were saying things like, uh, well, uh, all right, if I must. By about 2019, they were saying, yeah, let's, uh, uh, well, that's really that's surprisingly good for English wine. 2020 was hotter again. And people were starting to say, this is three incredibly hot summers in a row. My God, hey, um, hey, you've got some English wine there. Can I try it? 2022, even hotter. And people were saying, English wine. Do you know, we've got a vineyard near us. Every county in England, I think, has got vineyards now. And people were starting to say, I want English wine. It's it's literally the last five years that that's happened in. Um, COVID was 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 awful but fascinating because it also pushed people back into self sufficiency, and it pushed people back into saying, "What have we got around us? How can we support our own local communities?" And one of the ways, obviously, is to support your local winery to find a local vineyard and say, "We'll we'll we'll buy your wine." Um, uh, and the the nice thing is that nowadays, when people buy buy wine from English wine from an English English vineyard, they hardly ever let down. In the old days, even ten years ago, the probability was someone would buy it and say, oh, "Well, okay, I've I've tried it now. I, I can go back to France and Australia and New Zealand and South Africa. I don't have to try another English wine." Now the quality has gone so 
exponentially up in the last five years, not the last 10 years, the last five, that people are, are actively looking hopefully, for their local wines. Anybody who lives in the southern part of England, the East Anglia, down towards the southwest, I would like them to look for their local wines. But there are now big brands. Chapel Downs, a, a, a big brand. Denby's is a big brand. Ridgeview is a big brand. Three Choirs is a big brand. They're big brands you can find all over the place. Um, and it's it's a thrilling ride. And it's it's it, we're only just starting. Yeah. Like the climate change. Is going. The Copernicus report last week um, showed that climate change is, is still out of control politically. I think we, we make um, quite a good effort in this country. We belittle ourselves too much. Everybody is making an effort in this country to, to deal with climate change. The trouble is there are far too many players in the world who are not making an effort. Um, and this 1.5 is... is it's going to happen again and again in the next ten or twenty years, um, and it's 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 going to mean that we spread north and north. York, Yorkshire's now got twenty five, thirty different vineyards. Yorkshire's got its own vineyard trail now. Of course, the one thing that is going to happen, and we, it's just a case of whether it happens tomorrow or twenty years time or a hundred years time, is the Gulf Stream is going to stop because the Gulf Stream absolutely needs a healthy, cold arctic and and that's gonna go we're gonna we're gonna end up with the north pole devoid of ice and snow in midsummer at some time in the near future nasa in america has been predicting it for years now and it hasn't happened yet nature has has luckily still found ways to preserve the ice cap as far as it can but once the gulf stream goes of course all the waters around us will will drop in temperature by about six degrees centigrade, which will probably be the end of our Pinot Noirs coming in at 14.7% alcohol. It, it won't be the end, of course, of, of Britain being an attractive place to live. Um, it might even become an even more attractive pl- place to live, but it'll it'll because we will probably end up with very sunny summers, but colder ones, and very cold winters, but we'll probably end up with less rain. Climate change, year by year, it's a, it's a, a an absorbing, terrifying, fascinating phenomenon which we're bang in the middle of. It's a fascinating, sobering place to end, and by largely by coincidence, it's it's also really where the book ends as well. So um, you've kind of. Um, done great justice to the book uh, in uh, in your uh, in, in your conversation with me. Um, it's been uh, fantastic to to chat. As I say, um, it always is, um, and uh, the, the the book um, it just gives you a kind of um, a really authentic slice of, as I said, a night out with Oz. So um, I think uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, congratulations on it. It was a great idea, and uh, I'm sure it's going to do really well. Oz, thank you so much. Thanks, David. Look forward to our next tasting. Well. No, our next glass of wine. Yeah. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. And we round off with some medal winners from the IWSC in 2023. 
And Oz mentioned his uh, love of some of those great fortified wines. Uh, It was the fortified category that took home the most gold medals at the IWSC in 23. And here are some from Portugal. Calem, 40-year-old tawny port from the uh, Soji Venus stable, won a whopping 97 points. The judges described... A very fine-boned 40-year-old tawny displaying an expressive nose of toasted nut, leather, spice and Christmas cake. Pronounced fruit character with a herbal touch with coffee, caramel and a licorice note. Long finish of demerara sugar and toffee apple. A gold medal winner with 95 points from the same judging panel overseen by Dursi Viana Jr. MW. Also featuring another master of wine, Matthew Forster. Igor Sotrich, Andrew Johnson and Kat Lomax. Uh, Graham's 20-year-old Tawny Port. Here's the tasting note. This Tawny bears its quality through overt aromas of Christmas cake, blackcurrant leaf and tropical fruit. Delicate spiced notes provide a woody undertone to the plush palate that bulges with toffee apple before tapering to an elegant peppery finish. Kopke Colletta. Uh, 2005 was another gold medal winner, 95 points again, uh, described thus by the panel, delicately orange-pink with a heady mix of marmalade, tea leaf and nutty complexity, combining fruit-forward fig, saffron, mango and caramelised marzipan creaminess. An elegant, balanced, multi-layered expression of savoury barley sugar and soft vanilla undertones. It's not just about port, of course, when it comes to fortified from Portugal. Madeira is one of its other great styles. And here's another gold medal winner from that area. Justino's Tinta Negra, 1995. Here's what the panel said. Pronounced, aged and complex aroma characteristics showing toast, soy sweet cherry, chocolate and Asian fruit notes, fresh acidity to the palate and impressive complexity and concentration, a spicy character with rancio notes and great length. And also winning a gold, Cossart Gordon Vedelho, 1975, one of uh, the four classic styles of Madeira, almost 50 years old. The judges said a superb showing for this vintage, vermouth-like aromas of polished furniture, spiced nuts, leather and rancio notes, sweet and vigorous on the attack with layered depth to the structured and harmonious palate. A twist of bitterness highlights the long finish. Well, it's a short finish now. Uh, my thanks to uh, Oz Clark for fantastic, fascinating, fun uh, hour of chat. Hope you enjoyed that and do join us uh, next time for more. For now, goodbye. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.